Well, good morning, church. As we're turning back to our study of Acts this morning, we, we're running headlong into one of the most uncomfortable truths. That the most honest and generous attempts that we make to love other people and to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ, they don't always have the desired result. Right? We, we, we hope that by doing the right thing, by loving other people and doing everything we can to magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ, we think that things will come out well. But it's just not the case. We see it even in our text today. Right, right, Paul's doing everything he can to love a group of Jewish believers who, who think that he's trying to destroy their Jewish heritage. We come into the text, he's completing a process, a seven-day process that's focused on ritual purification. And, and he's personally financing the expenses of four men who are completing their vows before the Lord, like he's under no compulsion to do so. No reason he needs to do it. Yet in the very middle of doing all of these things, everything blows up in his face. Everything blows up in his face in the most ironic way. And I want you to see this as we begin. Because I think that countless Christians live under the false belief that everything is just going to go well in life if we make every effort to love other people and to love God. If I just do those two things, like, I should have a good life, right? God should be always looking out for me, right? Now, can we say, is this generally the case? I think to a degree we can say, well, generally it's probably the case, but it's not always the case. It's not always the case, especially in the context of what's going on in our passage today because what's the context in our passage? It's that that, that Paul was trying to love people who were already offended by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're already angry. They're already offended. And in cases like this, it can feel like doing the right thing has, a, has about the same probability as turning out as well as, as your experience would be as if you decided to jump in up and down on a ground hoarding's nest. You know? Like, 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 go mess with a sow's cubs. You know? Go play and frolic with the cubs while mom's nearby. It's not going to turn out well. I mean, it's like, it's like dancing through a minefield. None of these things we expect to turn out very well and it's the very same case when it comes to standing for Christ and loving others in the gospel when they are opposed to the gospel. But that begs the question, where do we find the courage? Where do we find the courage to do the right thing despite the possible cost? Isn't that the question? Where where do we get the courage to do the very things that we know that we should do, but we are afraid to do as Christians? Well, as we turn to our text today, I think we see it come out of Paul's life. We see it come out of Paul's speech to the crowd that a Christian's courage flows from their conviction that faithfulness to God is more important than the possibility of their suffering. 
Faithfulness to Christ is more important than the possibility of suffering for Christ. So with that said, let's turn to our opening verses and the irony of Paul's ordeal that begins all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, which I did not have Roger read this morning for all of your sake of time. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that is Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and against the law and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and he's defiled this holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. Now, now as we walk through this event, I, I want you to notice the irony of everything that's happening in this account. Number one, who is inciting the mob to attack and to kill Paul? It, it, it's not the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who he's trying to appease. As we saw last week, there's a group of Jewish Christians. They're concerned that Paul is turning people away from their heritage. The reason he's in the temple is for those people. And those aren't the people attacking him. The people is this new group of people that show up out of Asia because it's the time of the feast. They show up on the scene. It's a group of Jews that have been plaguing his evangelistic efforts for a number of years. We see it all the way back in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. He points to this group of people and he says this, and when they came to him, that is the Ephesian elders, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So, so the people that are showing up on the scene here in the temple are not the believing Jews that Paul is trying to address. It's this other group of unbelieving Jews that have come down from Asia. Number two. We see this irony pressed even further in that their accusations are at complete odds with Paul's present actions. I mean, just think about why is Paul in the temple to begin with? Why is he even there? He's engaged in an act of ritual purification in obedience to the law as requested by the elders of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, to put it plainly, he's doing everything he needed to do to not defile the temple in the first place. Like, like he's doing everything he's supposed to do. I mean, just think about it. If Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against the law and, in, and he's, he's teaching them against the temple, why in the world is he now present fulfilling a period of ritual purification in the temple itself? The argument doesn't work. But we all know when it comes to times like this, nobody pays attention to the actual truth. We can just watch any television news broadcast today. Nobody cares about the truth anymore. They care about the accusations. Nobody pays attention to the details. 
Rather, what do they do? They seize him and they drag him out of the temple and they proceed to beat him to death. And they would have done just that if it had not been for the unexpected arrival of the most unexpected rescuer. The irony of his salvation. Verse 31. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and he ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. They are in the process of beating Paul to death. The tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. I doubt that was very necessary. He then inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried. That is, Paul was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people following, crying out, away with him. Notice, who, who, who comes to Paul's rescue? It's not James and the elders of the church. The guys who told him to go up there and do this, it's like they're not the guys that rescue him. It's a Roman tribune. We, we know from chapter 23, verse 26, his name is Claudius Lysias. In fact, he becomes a central part of the story here for a little bit. And when he shows up on the scene, it's rather clear from the text that this tribune does not have a positive view of Paul. Sure, his men forcibly drag him out of the crowd, but what does he do next? He wants to know what Paul's done. It is guilty until proven innocent. And from everything we can see in the text, he is sure that Paul is guilty of something. Further down in verse 38, when he's talking to Paul, he he thinks Paul is, is part of this group of Egyptian assassins. After Paul's speech, 20, chapter 22, verse 24, he orders Paul into the barracks to be examined by flogging. He doesn't have a positive view of Paul. Yet in the midst of his beliefs about Paul, this tribune does the most unexpected and ironic thing in verse 40. He allows the beaten and bloodied Paul to address the very mob that was trying to kill him. I mean, in human terms, it doesn't make sense. But he does. And in this, Paul takes the opportunity in his speech to do two primary things. Two primary things we can see in Paul's speech. One is to defend his steadfast devotion as a Jew to God and to defend, number two, the radical but God-centered change that's occurred in his life. Two things which point to one central theme, his faithfulness to God in all things, at all times, in all ways. His faithfulness. So let's go Let's go to Paul's defense here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22. Paul says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. 
And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, he became, they became even more quiet. And he said, I- I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our forefathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So what do we see here? What do we see in the text? We see that the charge that he is teaching against the Jewish people and against the Jewish law and against the temple, Paul defends himself by directing his audience to three key aspects about his past life as a Jew. He's showing faithfulness past. And he begins by going to just, I mean, his very birth. He had an honorable birth. He's born a full-blooded Jew. He's born in Tarsus of Cilicia. And you might go like, why does that even matter? It's because in the first century there was, there was something that carried forth for your honor and it was linked with the city that you were born in. There was an honor of a city that would belong with the person who was born there. And Cilicia was a city that was well respected through the entire empire for its political and economic and intellectual life. So, so on, on one level he's saying, he's saying like, I'm an honorable person and I'm a full-blooded Jew. But he doesn't stop there. He makes it clear, he didn't grow up in Tarsus. He was, he was born out in Tarsus, outside of the land of Israel, but he was then brought up as a proper Jew in Jerusalem. He, he's educated at the feet of one of the most revered rabbis in the first century, Gamaliel himself, and this is important for two reasons. He's making it clear that in his religious upbringings, he was wholly orthodox in everything that he believed. He hadn't been trained by Hellenist Jews outside in, in, the, in the broader reaches of the empire. He hadn't been brought up in an, in an environment where his, his Jewish religion was kind of meshed in with the Greek philosophy and culture and idolatry on the outside. It was pure. He learned from the purest source. And he also made it clear that his instruction in the law wasn't lax. It wasn't liberal. It wasn't progressive. And it wasn't deficient. Because he'd been brought up under the strictest interpretation of the law as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. There's nobody that had a higher understanding of the law. I mean, Paul was a guy who knew how to apply the law in ways that people never even contemplated. That's the kind of guy Paul is. But even more, when we think of Paul's faithfulness, Paul didn't live his life as a two-faced hypocrite. You, you, know, you know, throughout throughout the entire Gospels, all four Gospels, we, we see these religious leaders, they're constantly portrayed as hypocrites. But Paul's saying, like, I wasn't a hypocrite. I wasn't teaching one thing and doing another thing. 
No, I was more zealous for the law than anyone among the Pharisees, among the Sadducees, against the Sanhedrin. I was the most zealous person there was. Just look around. Who went and chased down the Christians? It was me. Me. I was the one. I was the one who did that. In my zeal for the law, in my hatred of the way, I went above and beyond all of my peers in my faithfulness to God. They would have just stood by. They would have done nothing. But I didn't. No, no, I secured permission from the high priest and the elders. They didn't do it, I did it. They gave me permission. They wrote me letters. In fact, by stating that, Paul is saying, you know what, you want, you want, to, you want to have witnesses for my past faithfulness? Go talk to the chief priests. Go talk to the elders. Go talk to the Sanhedrin. They'll tell you. But he's saying, I secured permission to hunt down Christians and drag them off to prison. Evidence of my faithfulness to God. Just look around. There's not a person around here that'll tell you that I was not faithful to God. But this very assertion begs the question how did Paul change? from a zealous Pharisee and a persecutor of the church to a zealous preacher of Jesus Christ. How did that happen? How how do you go from being wholly faithful to the law to being a proclaimer of the gospel? I mean, what was it? Was it because he was somehow corrupted by the Christians that he captured? What was he solely captivated by the Christians' love for one another that he saw? What, what was it? Was he convicted by the way that they stood for Jesus despite their cost? No, it wasn't any of those. It was because the God of Israel broke into his life in the most sovereign and powerful and objective way. God broke into his life. Which is the second half of the speech showing why all of his actions in the present are utter faithfulness to God. Number one, it begins with his encounter with the risen Jesus Christ beginning in verse six. He's like, I was on my way. I'm being faithful. I'm gonna go capture all these Christians. I'm going to Damascus. And it was about noon, and a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very hour I received my sight, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, 
to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you await? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now let me point out something that's easy to overlook that's really central to Paul's defense here. We're we're so familiar with this story we can miss some important things. The first is this. Paul didn't have a dream in the middle of the night. Did he? He he didn't have a personal vision of Jesus in his private prayer closet at home. Not saying that that can't happen. In fact, we see it happen in the temple in the following verses. Now, we see in this account what is happening is that Paul is traveling at noon, the brightest time of the day, when with a larger group of people, he is not by himself. And he sees a a bright light from heaven that's brighter than the sun itself, and it leaves him utterly blind. Out of the light, what does he hear? He hears the resurrected Jesus address him in an audible voice that he can understand, but the people who with him cannot understand. And in this, in this moment, what is Paul forced to recognize? He's forced to recognize the truth that the very one that he had despised and that he had rejected as a charlatan, as a fraud, and as a blasphemer, that is Jesus Christ, the very one that he had rejected was in fact the Lord of glory, was in fact the Messiah himself. That's what's revealed to him. And how does Paul respond to this mind-blowing revelation that his greatest efforts at honoring God, his greatest efforts at walking in faithfulness to God himself are actually acts of rebellion and persecution against God and his people. We see that Paul falls apart and asks one simple question four words. What shall I do? His life's changed. Everything that he holds to be true transformed and as we know Jesus sends him on to Damascus so that he can meet Ananias and learn more about his new calling but but let's just pause here for a moment how does this vision help Paul's defense how does it help his defense I mean anyone can claim they had a vision we, we have no objective way to prove or disprove it, right? Well, one of the key features of Paul's account here is he's pointing, his, he's pointing the entire crowd to the fact that he wasn't alone. He's actually presenting witnesses. In the opening section regarding his past life, who are the witnesses? It's the people that wrote him letters to go attack Who are the people or who is witnesses? Gamaliel himself, if he's still alive at this time. And who are his witnesses for the change in his life? The people on the road. They can corroborate all the events that happened to him. They they saw the light, 
Just like Paul saw. They heard the sound. They didn't hear the voice. In fact, these are the people that actually led him down to Damascus. So he has witnesses. And when he arrives in Damascus, who does he meet? He meets another witness that they would accept. He meets Ananias, who is called a devout man according to the law and well spoken of by the Jews. Even the man that points him to Christ, the man that baptizes him, is a man who is well known and loved and appreciated by the Jews. And it's through this man that Paul's healed and he receives his commission as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His commission. Verse 14. He says, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear his voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and what you have heard. And now why do you wait, rise, and be baptized and wash away your sin, calling on his name? What is Paul pointing the mob to at this point? He wants them to see that his commitment to Jesus Christ is in direct continuity with everything that God had promised in the law and the prophets. He's drawing a line from his past life in Judaism, everything that he had practiced, everything that he's done, everything they were looking forward to, and he's saying, it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Jesus The God of our fathers has done this. That's key. Not my God, not your God, not a new God. No, our God has done this. He's revealed Jesus, his Messiah, the righteous one. that's, That's just another way of saying Messiah. One of the terms that Jesus is called. And if this is the case, which it is, Paul is telling them, I'm not promoting some new heretical sect. I'm I'm not trying to start some new religion. No, no, I'm proclaiming the good news that God has fulfilled his promises in the person of Jesus Christ. You're saying that I'm not being faithful. Let me show you why I'm being faithful and what has changed in my life. That's what he wants them to see. In fact, this helps us see why Paul is so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is he so committed? Why does he go through everything that he goes to? It's because Paul's ministry isn't about him. It's not about him gaining a following for himself. It's not. It's about his faithfulness to God. It's about his faithfulness to the calling that he's received from God. And Paul could have stopped here and moved on, but he doesn't because there's still part of his defense that he needs to bring into the picture. He needs to address two things that he hasn't addressed yet. That is their accusations about the temple and specific nature of his apostleship. 
Notice, what's it, what, what do they complain about? He's preaching against the temple and he's been trying to defile the temple. But notice where Paul goes starting in verse 17. He actually goes into the temple in his defense. When I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Notice, where does Paul go after Damascus? He comes back. He doesn't abandon the temple. He's back in the temple. He's praying. He's still trying to figure this thing out. And he's told to leave. Verse 19. Because they won't accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know. Then in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by him and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And with this word, they listened to him, but they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And once again, the tribune had to extricate Paul from the situation. Notice here, Paul is showing his reverence for the temple even after he came to faith in Christ. But even more, who does Paul meet in the temple? He meets Jesus. He meets the true Lord of the temple. That's who he meets. And what does Jesus do? He commands him. He commands him to leave Jerusalem because, because the Jews are, are, going to, are going to chase after him and they're not going to accept his message. They're not going to accept his testimony about Christ even though he's done everything in his, even though everything he's done in his past shows he's been faithful. They're not going to believe him. And then at the apex, what does Jesus command Paul to do from the very temple itself but to go to the Gentiles? So so what do we see in this trajectory of this entire speech? Paul's making it clear. Like, like, I have not broken away from and I have not apostatized from my ancestral faith. I have not left it. I'm faithful. Everything, everything that I'm teaching is in direct continuity with everything that we've grown up, everything that we've learned according to the law. Jesus of Nazareth is the righteous one, the Messiah, the one whom prophecy has been pointing forward to and it's been fulfilled in his arrival. And in this he's also trying to make it clear that the aspects of his faith that have changed because there are changes, there are changes from the old covenant to the new covenant, right? Christ has forever paid for sin once and for all in his all-atoning sacrifice. No more need for the sacrificial system. He's our high priest interceding for us, not requiring the priesthood. There, there have been changes. 
but most notably, something that the Jews had not anticipated. The biggest change was the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. And he's saying all of this, all of this is the result of God's work and God's plan and God's purposes, not my own ideas. Therefore, from the beginning of my life in ministry to the end, all of my training as a Jew, my entire life has been devoted to faithfulness to God and is still marked by faithfulness in everything that I do. And he's saying, what could change that? What could change from what could change me from where I was to where I am? Nothing, nothing but an unexpected and overwhelming intervention by God Himself. Which is what happened. Now it's clear from the text here that Paul's ordeal continues to go on past twenty four, but we've already taken on a massive amount of scripture today. So we're going to come back to that next week. And I want to turn back to our opening question about Paul's courage. We began with the question about courage. We've had to walk through this text. Let's come back and, and, and analyze this. Let's take a look at the source of Paul's courage. So I'm asking the question, why? why? Why would Paul risk his life to tell an angry mob about Jesus right after they tried to kill him. It doesn't seem like a very smart idea. I mean, after all, the crowd could have overwhelmed the soldiers at any moment and murdered him on the spot. I mean, I mean, the soldiers, I mean, as it was, they had to carry him up the stairs. The crowd, when they take him back into the barracks, are losing their minds. They withdraw into the building for safety. Well, the reason that Paul does it is that he's not paralyzed by his fear. And, and we all know what fear is. We, we, all, we, all, we all have fear about countless things in our life, but here in this moment, Paul is not paralyzed by the fear that he might die. He's not paralyzed by that. And, it's, and I know it's kind of like, like, how do I wrap my mind around the fact that, that, that he's been beaten and he's been pulled out, and he's not afraid. He's not. Rather, what we see in the text, we see that Paul stands firm in the midst of these very real fears. It's not that the fears aren't there. They're real. But Paul stands firm in the midst of them because he's driven by one all-consuming goal and it's the goal that he has laid out from beginning to the end of his speech. And that's been one thing, faithfulness to God. What's motivating Paul in all things throughout his entire religious life? It's been one theme, top to bottom, in the entire episode. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. And that faithfulness to Paul is more important than his personal well-being. 
Let's go back to Acts chapter 20, verse 24. On his way to Jerusalem, when the prophets were coming out of the woodwork and saying, Paul, Paul, if you go there, it's going to be prison, it's going to be beating, it's not going to be a very good visit. Here's his answer. I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself but why? Not, not just because his life is worthless. He says, no, there's something greater. I have a greater treasure. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, when we talk about faithfulness being the motivator, this is where we see it even clearly before he ever gets there. He's laid this on the table before anything happens and we see it lived out in his life in the events that happened in Jerusalem. See, this is what drove Paul to do everything that he did. Faithfulness to Christ was more important to Paul than the possibility of suffering for Christ. But let's be honest. Our faithfulness doesn't always look like Paul's, does it? I mean, as Christians, we we wilt when we should flourish. We cower when we should stand in courage. We do. But why do we do this? Why do we do it? Is it because we're faithless, defective Christians? Is it because Paul was utterly fearless? I think the answer in both cases is no. I think the answer in both cases is no. I think we need to ask the question to dig under the surface. How does Paul walk in his faithfulness? How does he get it in the face of fear? It's clear in the book of Acts that Paul does not enjoy getting beaten. More than once, even in this text, coming up in the, like when he gets taken up to the barracks, we're not covering it today. When they're ready to stretch him out and flog him, he says, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. Like, 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 he's not looking for opportunities to get beaten. So how does Paul get it? How do we get it? What, what, what clues exist in Paul's life to help us understand how do I get closer to that than where I am at today? How, how do I move in that direction? Well, I'd like to highlight two, two clues this morning that we see in Paul's life. The first one is this. It is that Paul was a man who constantly looked away from himself and put the needs of other people above himself. He, he wasn't focused on himself. He was constantly focused on the needs of other people. I mean, haven't we just seen this in the text last week and this week? Last week, there's a big problem in the church. 
And, and what does Paul do? He takes it upon himself to straighten out all the problems. Even though James and the elders should have been working a lot harder to fix the problem, they didn't. Or maybe what they tried didn't work. We don't know. We're not told in the text. But what we are told is that when it was brought to Paul, Paul willingly took on the entire cost of trying to bring unity to the church and clarity to the gospel. He didn't have to, but he did. He saw there was a greater priority. The gospel is at the center. Jewish believers in Jerusalem needed to know how the gospel really unites Jews and Gentiles. That's what needed to happen. And he was going to do anything it took to make it happen. And then in terms of our text today, when the unbelieving mob needed to know that they were lost in their sin and they needed to find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, Paul's willing to share with them the the essence of the gospel. And in this looking away from himself and looking to the needs of others, what is Paul doing? He's actually modeling the very heart of Jesus Christ. Isn't he? Because what did Jesus choose to do? He he chose to rescue mankind when we deserved nothing but his righteous wrath. Nothing good in us inherently. No reason for him to turn. Nothing but to, I mean, everything we deserve is his wrath. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse three. We, we handled part of this last week. We'll continue even further. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul's doing. Let each of you look out not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. And just in case we might think that there's this this boundary line of, well, do it unless it hurts or unless it's difficult or unless it's complicated or unless they're really not nice people to begin with. He takes us to Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though, though despite the fact that he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't hold on to his rights and privileges saying, no, I'm unwilling. No, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. We didn't deserve any of that. Friends, this is where courage begins for the Christian. It begins by looking away from ourselves because as we're looking to ourselves, we, we, we see all of those fears and how they might impact us, the cost it might have in our life. The more we look to ourselves, the more our fear blows up and catches fire the more our eyes are on ourselves. Because we see what the cost of obedience might cost. Instead of looking out for the gospel needs of other people. So number one, this courage begins with, with looking away from ourselves to the needs of those that are around us. But, but it doesn't stop with looking away. That's, that's, that's only the first move. It starts with looking away But then where do we put our eyes? 
We, we don't ultimately place our focus on the people that have the need. And this is really important. I mean, I mean, honestly, when we start serve, you start serving people, and especially you start trying to like, you like reach out to people who are already opposed to the gospel. And if you just only look at them, you're going to have every reason to eventually turn away because it's really frustrating and it's hard and it's painful. He looks away from himself and he points his eyes to Jesus Christ, his only source of hope in life and death. Our eyes need to be on Christ. Just think about it. When Paul realized in in this interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus that Jesus had been raised from the dead, everything in his life changes in one fail swoop. The meaning of his death, the grounds of his hope, and his future, the meaning that he has new hope and he has joy, and they're all anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything in his life flows from his union with Christ and his eternal hope in Christ. As Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. But to die is to gain. And again, he's not in a rush to death. If I'm, if I'm going to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor, and that's a good thing. Yet which I desire I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. And that is a mindset that is so hard in a world with grandkids and family and vacations and travel plans and everything else that we could possibly do. But he actually says to be with Christ is gain. See, if Jesus Christ really died on the cross and if Jesus really took our punishment and he's really been raised from the dead, the threats of this world lose their power. That's how we can see fear and not lose our minds to the fear that we face. And that's because when we believe in him, we're not just just cleansed of our sin. We We receive an incorruptible promise of everlasting joy with Jesus Christ. Our salvation isn't just about life in this life. And it's not only about life in the life to come. Therefore, at the end of the day, I think that we can say, Real courage for the Christian is not, it's not found in the absence of fear. You're, you're, you're never going to find a place where you can just kind of wash away all the fear and stand there in your own power. No. No, it's found in the pursuit of a greater joy than our safety could ever provide. The kind of joy that compelled our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to fulfill his mission on this planet. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him? The joy is not the cross. No, no. He endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand 
of the throne of God. His eyes aren't on himself. Christ, Paul's eyes aren't on himself. But looking past and through the event of the pain to what is the joy that's on the other side. For Jesus, that meant the joy of pleasing the Father by fulfilling his task. It meant the joy of redeeming his people and it meant the joy of everlasting eternity with God. See, friends, and in this, the promise and in this joy is where we can actually find assurance that faithfulness to Christ is more important than the possibility of any suffering we could ever face in our obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's close in order of prayer.